For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we are in Hebrews 1, and I just want to remind you of some of the background, some of the, the underpinnings here. This is a largely Hebrew audience uh, that's, um, that's being written to. We're not entirely sure who the author is, but it's clear that these people are under persecution. We talked last week about how uh, the, at this point in history, Christianity and Judaism aren't two distinct different things. That uh, those who were Christians typically considered, the, considered themselves to be Jews who believed the Messiah had come, and then there were Jews who believed that the Messiah had not come. There was just this heretic Jesus who the Pharisees rightly had put to death. And so you, there was conflict between them, and the Pharisees were the religious rulers of their day. They were the uh, guys who ran the synagogues. And so if you became a Christian, you were basically saying the Pharisees were wrong, you're siding with Jesus and his critique of the Pharisees, and you would be potentially heavily persecuted in Israeli culture during this time to be kicked out of a synagogue, uh, to be um, even arrested, or to have your property seized. There's evidence that a lot of things that these guys were paying a heavy price for standing up against what was probably the majority at the time, saying, no, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So the people that are being written to here are kind of caught between this tension of tradition, what their fathers have said, what their fathers' fathers have said, and going back into the tradition of the Jewish people, and the teachings of Jesus Christ, which do not contradict the teachings of the Torah, the Old Testament itself, but is highly critical of some of the Jewish traditions that are outside of Scripture. And so they're wondering, and the author's clearly concerned, one of his main desires here is to reinforce to them that this new way, this new understanding is worth it. It's worth all the things and all the alienation and all the tension and all the fear that you have about standing up and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's worth it because it's true. And so this issue of, of this tension is very much a part of what the author wants to help guide them through. Why should I believe the teachings of Jesus and that he is the Messiah when I've got all these super trained spiritual leaders who are telling us that that is not the case and that Jesus was a false prophet? And so this kind of opens up the discussion in a way Think about, what does it mean to be under authority? Why should I listen and be put myself under Jesus' authority and not the Pharisees' authority? How does authority work? And what, what would be the criteria by which I would give someone or an ideology authority in my life? And so we could think it through and we could say, well, there's clearly roles that have authority, right? My boss has authority. He signs my paycheck, 
or I might be under a mentor or in a contract with a landlord or in my marriage, I certainly have said, you know, we're going to live together and what you think matters and that we are going to be working together to try to come to conclusions about things. So we are as spouses an authority in each other's lives. And then there could be also, you know, what we want in authorities is someone who's earned it, right? We don't want to just have to put ourselves under incompetent authority. So we might be looking and saying, well, is this somebody who I know loves me? Is this somebody who I believe is wise, that has expertise in a field? Have they uh, have more experience in the areas that I want to learn from them in? And do they have proven character? Are they somebody that I can trust, These are all the kinds of ruminations that we would go through when saying, you know, why should I be under this person's authority? And so our author of Hebrews is looking at the situation that they're in, and he's answering the question why they should be under Jesus' authority and not the religious rulers. And what he really does is he gives them two main reasons why Jesus is the one who they should accept as an authority. The first reason is who he is, and the second reason is because of what he's done. And so I just want to take a look at those for a minute here from the argument of the author himself. He's saying you should put your chips on Jesus and his authority because of who he is. This is the passage, this is as far as we got last week uh, talking about, but this is, uh, this is the passage where, where we begin. And he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. So we talked last week about what it means, what he's referencing when he says, God's spoken to us in many ways through many different people, many different prophets throughout the centuries. But most recently, he's spoken to us in his son. And so what he's saying is, and it's really clear, I think, as we look through this, as we ask the question, who is our author? It's clear that this person has a trained legal mind. They understand the Old Testament scriptures incredibly well, and they're used to making very concise and very well-structured arguments that you would expect to see in like a legal brief. And so he starts his argument by saying, why should we trust in Christ? Because he is a higher authority than the Old Testament prophets. He is a more recent and a more potent way for us to understand the will of God in our lives. He's careful not to say he cancels out what the prophets said, but that he is greater than the prophets. Why? Well, he goes on and says, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he'd made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we look at that section that we just read and we see there's a very well-structured point-by-point argument here. He was appointed the heir of all things, that Jesus is the owner of the universe. That his inheritance, what belongs to him, is everything that has ever been made or everything that will ever be made. 
So he's the owner and he's the creator. He is the being that is responsible for all creation and all existence. He brought it about so it is his, it belongs to him, and he's responsible for it. He's the revealer. He's the highest form for us to understand the character and nature of God because he is God himself. God come to dwell among us. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You can't more clearly say, if you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. If you want to learn about who God is, look at who Jesus is. And that is the ultimate expression of who he is. He's the sustainer. This is remarkable that he upholds all things by the word of his power. He not only created it, but he is keeping it going. He is actively involved in the ongoing existence of his creation. And he's God. So when we ask that first question, why should Jesus be an authority in my life? We see that his answer is because he's better than any picture, any version, any way, you know, theologians call it revelation, not in the book of revelations, but in the sense of he has revealed who God is. He has revealed who God is in a more powerful and precise way than anyone who has come before him. The universe and everything created in it is created and sustained by him. He has the rights and privileges of ownership in everything, and that includes you. Yuck. Right? Like, that's the part where I think it gets hard for us. This idea that we belong or that we are, we are under an authority greater than ourselves. This gets down to the very root of the entire human condition and the problem that we have with the idea of an all-powerful God. We like to be like God, knowing good and evil for ourselves. We like to decide, and this is something that's very much in human nature. This is something that's very root in all of us. But also, our culture is very much saying, I am the master of my own destiny. I am under my own domain. And God says, well, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're super cute. But you're not God. You're not the ultimate authority for yourself or anything else. You're important. You're valuable. You're loved. You were made for an incredible reason, an incredible purpose. But you were not made to rule the universe. That's my job. And you can't have it, says God. Psalm 50, 10 through 12, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Which is kind of a hilarious thing because really what he's refuting here is the ancient practice of sacrifice for the purposes and, and the religions around Israel, they would sacrifice animals because they believed that they were like feeding the gods. And everybody knows you give a god a full belly and he'll be more likely to, to, to answer your prayers. And God's like, I don't need you to feed me. I'm the creator of the universe and I own everything. The sacrifice that I have you do is not to feed me. It's to teach you. 
Because I own all things. And everything is under my authority. So we ask that question, why should Jesus be an authority in my life? And the author starts with, well, he's the owner and operator of the universe. Which means he doesn't only have the right to do whatever he wants, but it also means that he has a responsibility for what we do. That God, as the one who set all of this in motion, and not only just with the Big Bang, but in an ongoing way is allowing matter and energy to exist, is culpable for what we do. He is responsible for his creation and he must oversee its existence. All creation is accountable to him. And we see this expressed many places in scripture. A good one is Exodus when Moses is uh, hanging out with God and he's like, let me see you. I want to know what you're like. And God's like, "Mm, that'd blow you away. But I'm going to like pass in front of you and you can like see like the glow that's left over. And he's like, okay, show me that. And it says in Exodus 34, six through seven, then the Lord passed in front of him and he proclaimed, this is what God, how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's the God of the Bible that we're dealing with. He's kind, he's compassionate, he's patient, he's caring, he's merciful, he's loving, but he is also just. Meaning that evil cannot be allowed to exist without consequence and that evil cannot be perpetrated without judgment. He's good, so he must judge evil, but he is kind and loving and patient and merciful. So he puts up with us, but there's got to be a reckoning. There's got to be a recompense for all the evil that's been committed by us because he's good and he's responsible. So the two reasons that our author brings forward here is one, Jesus should be an authority in your life because of who he is. But what about this other one because of what he's done? What is, what is it that we mean by that? Well, we go right back to our passage and he ties in who he is right with what he's done. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Meaning that he came and he took the judgment that we deserve. He purified our sins. And not just a little bit, not just up to that point, but for all time. In the Old Testament, when somebody sits down, it means they're done. It's complete. It's full. It's finished. He completely covered the penalty that we all deserve for our sins, and then he sat down. So we can add to owner, creator, revealer, and sustainer, savior of the human race. 
He took the punishment and the judgment that we deserve because of our evil, and he purified it. He took it upon himself so that we could be made clean and perfect and reconciled to our creator. Meaning that we can trust that he has our best interest in mind. Remember when we started, we said, you know, what are the things that we look for? When we look at somebody's role, right? Jesus' role is the ultimate authority in the universe, the owner and creator and sustainer of all things. But we would also like to look at their qualifications. Do they love us? Will they love us enough to die on the cross for us? Are they good? Well, they, Jesus, who though he was not sinful himself, took the penalty of our sin upon himself because of his mercy for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had no evil, had no rebellion, deserved no judgment, but took on that judgment so that we could be healed and reconciled. So as the owner and operator and sustainer of all things, he is responsible and something must be done. We say, well, you know, a lot of us are upset with the idea of a God because we look at all the pain and the injustice and the selfishness and the greed and the inequality, the way that man treats his fellow man in such an inhumane way. And we say, if there is a God and he's powerful, he can't be good. Because look at the world around us. Look at how people live. And if there were justice, then bad things wouldn't happen to good people. And good things wouldn't happen to bad people. And God says, that's true to a point. But you have to have an eternal perspective on this. For a time, bad people can get away with it. But not forever. No one will escape God's justice. It may appear that way from our standpoint because we only see what happens this side of eternity. But God says, rest assured, all evil will be punished. And then we're like, all evil? How about just the people that are more evil than me? That's sort of where we like to draw draw that line and say, you know, well, you know, I understand, but, you know, uh, you know, people that are basically good should get off scot-free or God, God's mercy would apply to them. But the people who hurt me, those people should be judged. And the people who do things that I have not yet done to others, those people should be judged. And God says, no, 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 no. All evil will be judged. He says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When we do evil, when we are selfish in thought or in deed, God says the natural consequences of that is judgment. God says, think about it in, in, in terms of you are connected with me and I'm the source of life. And then when you do evil, you unplug yourself from the source. What is that like? It's, it's like you're a lamp and you're plugged in, but all of a sudden you're a lamp that just unplugged yourself 
What happens, the natural consequence of that is you have no more light. God says, I am the source of all good and light in the universe. And when you rebel against what is good, you disconnect yourself from the source of life and face judgment. But that same verse, I only put up part of it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the solution to the problem of evil. God says, I understand why you're frustrated. I understand why you're in pain. I understand why you look around and you say, God must not be good because I allow evil to exist for a time. But what you need to know is there is a judgment that everyone will face, including you. But there is very good news, which is that I died and went and took the judgment that you deserve upon myself so that you do not have to face it. And instead, you can be grafted into my family and become one of my children for all eternity. And then when you come and stand before me, he says, I'll wipe the tears away from your eyes from the pain and the suffering and the time of calamity where man lived among his fellow man in unjust ways. That's the vision that he paints for us. Okay, that sounds very interesting and that's a very compelling argument, but what reasons would I have for believing it? Why would I think it's true? Okay, you've said he's God, but you haven't proven that he's God. So why would I believe the premise that you've laid out? I have to see the truth of the premise before I can agree with the conclusion. And the author of Hebrews, of course, does that in a very powerful way for his Hebrew audience that would be somewhat lost on us today because most of us don't know the Old Testament the way that they did. But look at what he does. He keeps going. And he says in verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And the angel says, who makes it? And the angel says, who makes his angels winds and, the, and his ministers a flame of fire? See? <laughs> it's super clear, isn't it? No, we read this and uh, we're very tempted to say, I have no idea what any of that means, but you brought angels into it and a lot of stuff that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right? And part of that, a big part of that is because we're 21st century Americans who don't know the Old Testament. We're not his original audience. So we have to do a little digging to put ourselves in their shoes. And it's not, it's not too complicated. The first thing when you run into a passage like this that we should ask ourselves is why the font change there. Notice that we're reading that and we're saying, okay, but why did all of a sudden does it go all caps? This is something that interpreters, translators of Bibles tend to do to signify, to give us a clue that what's happening is the Old Testament is being quoted. 
And it makes a lot of sense that our author, who's a very astute, sharp arguer, talking to a Hebrew audience, these people would have already accepted the authority of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so to use the Old Testament to explain to them why Jesus is higher and more authoritative than the prophets or the angels would make a lot of sense. And so he goes through this and he does something where he demonstrates, one, his knowledge of scripture, and two, his ability to put together a solid argument. So he quotes Psalm 2-7, 2 Samuel 7-14, Psalm 97-7, and Psalm 104-4, just in this section. He's jumping all over scripture And what is it that he's arguing? He's arguing that the Old Testament, the prophets, which between him and his audience, there is no discussion or debate about whether that's authoritative. He says that completely explains that the Messiah is greater than all of these. Jesus is higher than the angels, he says, because God called him his son. The angels are messengers. These are just spiritual beings. God created a lot of stuff. And he created us, which we have bodies and we have spirits. But apparently he also created beings that are spiritual beings. And these are called messengers. They're not called sons. And he says, he said to Jesus, he said the Messiah he would call his son. And he directed the angels to worship him. Who all in the Bible does God direct his creation to worship? Only himself. Yet he quotes the Old Testament and the Psalms to explain that God says that we should worship the Messiah. Why should we do that? Because the Messiah is God. And the angels, he says, belong to him. They should worship him. And by the way, in the rabbinical tradition, this isn't from the Old Testament, but it's from the history of what we know that they believed. They also believed that all of the Old Testament was transmitted from angels to the prophets. And he's saying all of this came, if you believe that it came from angels to the prophets, well, Jesus is greater and more powerful and the angels worship him. And they belong to him. So Jesus is a higher authority than they are. Like, oh, okay. And he goes on. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the righteous scepter and the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands, and they will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment and they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. That whole thing is almost in all caps again. And we see that he's quoting Psalm 45, 6 through 7, Psalm 102, 25, 26, Isaiah 51, 6, and Psalm 102, 26 through 27. He's arguing with them from their authority, from their scriptures, why this is true. 
And he says, but to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, right? He's saying, aren't the angels God's servants? He doesn't say to the angels, I'm going to make you a conqueror. He doesn't say, I'm going to make all of your enemies laid low before you. They're all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Psalm 110. So when we put this all together, we see he is called my son. The angels are directed to worship him. The angels are his. He is eternal and will rule forever. The world itself will pass away, but the Messiah will never pass away. And he says, this has always been clearly outlined in the scriptures. Jesus is not a contradiction of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is what all of the prophets point to as God's plan. And this really lays the boom down on his audience. Remember, if they're not disagreeing, the tension for them is not whether or not the Old Testament is authoritative or not. The tension is how does Jesus fit into the authoritative picture of the Old Testament? And he just nails it to the wall, explaining to them the authority structure of the cosmos. And he says to them, essentially, you say you're under the authority of Scripture. Good. Scripture is about Jesus Christ. You can't be in tension with the Old Testament and Jesus because they are one and the same program from one and the same source, talking about one and the same thing. You can't be loyal to Scripture, loyal to Moses, loyal to the prophets, loyal to God, and reject the central point that they are all engaged in making. You can't do that. And Jesus himself made exactly the same argument. He made it to the Pharisees who were railing against him. Jesus says in John 5, 45 to 47, he rebukes the Pharisees for rejecting what he's saying and said, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. He says, look, your problem really isn't me. The one that accuses you is Moses. And they're like, oh, not Moses. Moses is our guy. That's what they think, right? And Jesus says, no, Moses is my guy. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your help. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There's no conflict between me and Moses, Jesus says. Moses worked for me. His main job was to get you ready for my appearance. And so when all of this is over and you stand before God... And you say to him, well, we were loyal to Moses. God is going to say to you, no. You fought against Moses because Jesus was who Moses was talking about. And so when we draw back then and look at the structure of this argument, the flow of thought from Hebrews, 
We see Jesus is more authoritative than the prophets. Jesus is God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus took our place in judgment so that we can be reconciled to him. All people can be reconciled through him. And that he's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's the argument that he's making here. Plus, he's higher He has a greater authority and a greater clarity for us to understand the will of God than the entire Old Testament without being in contradiction to it. He's the fulfillment of it. And his point to his audience is this. This is why it is so important that we persevere and listen to Jesus, that we make Jesus the ultimate authority in our life Not a Pharisee, not a pastor, not a preacher, not somebody we think is really cool, but Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe, and we have his teachings laid out in Scripture, and anyone who contradicts the teachings of Jesus is not his servant, is not accomplishing his purposes. Then we get to chapter 2, and I just want to read the last four verses in chapter 2 for tonight. He goes on and explains why it's so important. He says, for this reason, because of Jesus is such a high authority, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, the Old Testament, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both with signs and wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He's saying, if you think the Old Old Testament is authoritative and you would have a problem with God if you went against the Old Testament, how much more would you have a problem with God if you went against God himself and the person of Jesus Christ? Think about it this way. He's saying, if God has a plan, like we talked about last week, starting all the way back in the garden when man rebelled against God, a plan that was designed to uphold both his justice and his righteousness and his mercy and his love and to bring us back into a relationship with him. And that plan involved God speaking and working over thousands of years through various prophets and various people in various ways and parting the Red Sea and putting plagues in Egypt and all the miracles and all the things that the people of Israel had attested to as their experience of God working in. And it all points to Jesus Christ. And in the end, it's not a prophet who comes. It's not an angel who comes. It's not a vision. It's God himself comes and dwells among us. If that happens, and that's God's plan, and we miss that, 
Then he does all these miracles where the blind see and the lame walk and the dead are raised and he himself goes to the cross and then he is raised after three days. If we see all of that and we're like, I'm not convinced. And then most important of all, he took our place in the judgment and all he asks in return, the only thing he wants from us in return is our trust in him. He wants to bring us to that place where we want to be our own God. We think we can pull it off. We want God's job. We look at all this and we say, no, there is something greater than myself. And he is my authority. That's what he wants. It's the reversal of the fall of man in the garden where we said, I don't want to be under God's authority anymore. I want to be under my authority. God does all of this and says, are you willing to change your mind about that and not be under your authority anymore, but be under God's authority? Will you do that now that you know who I am and now that you've seen what I've done and you've seen the miracles and you've seen the testaments and you've understood all of this, will you do that? And we say, eh, I'd prefer to do it another way. What should God's reaction to that be? That's our author's question. God does all of that, and we're like, "Mm, I think I'll try some religious rituals. I'll light some candles, and I'll go to a building, and I'll bow a lot, and I'll do all these things, and maybe that's the best way to go. Or maybe not that, but I'll stick to tradition. I'll look at what people have done for years and years going backward. And if it was good enough for grandpa, it's good enough for me. Or rather than put my faith in God, I'll just try to be a super good person. I'll look at everybody else around me and I'll try to be better than them. I'll try to be more moral and more generous and more just. I'll try that rather than surrender the authority of my life to God. Some of us say, well, I'm just going to think happy thoughts. I'm just going to try to be super positive, and I'm pretty sure it'll work out in the end. Others are bold enough to say, I'll stand before God on my own merits. If, God, if I'm not good enough for God, then I'll take whatever he's got coming. And let me just plead with you that there is a much better way. It's the only way that God says works, and it's not on this page. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, I am the only way. Faith in me is the only way. And we're like, yeah, that just really bothers me. And he's like, I understand. You're still railing against that desire to be your own authority, but you're wonderful and you're lovely and I care deeply for you, but you don't get to decide how things should be. Peter 
after the resurrection, stood up in front of all the people who had crucified Jesus in Acts 4, 10 through 12 and gave this speech said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's saying that to the people who only weeks before had been yelling, crucify, crucify. And you know what happened? Thousands of them came to believe in Jesus Christ. They saw the problem with their rebellion. And they realized the error of what they had done. They had literally killed God's Messiah. And yet, the offer of salvation for them still stood. And their pride was broken by it. You mean God is so good and so loving that even though I myself stood as I watched him being beaten. And Pilate came forward and said, how about Barabbas? And I said, no, crucify him. I could still be forgiven. Peter's like, yeah, that's exactly who God is. That's exactly that picture. Paul in Romans 10, 8 through 11 wrote, but why does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart? That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. What is it to confess in your heart? It's to say, God, I am giving up my rebellion and I am putting myself under your authority. You are God. I am your creation. That's the transaction that God is looking for. The same exact transaction from the garden. But it's in reverse. They were born in unity with God. And they chose calamity and disunity. We are born disunified by God. But because of Jesus Christ, we only need to turn to him and make a choice. And that's the hope that we all have as God's children. So what does this mean for us? How do we process this? Clearly, what's being said here is there's only one way to be made right with God. And I know we don't like to hear that. And I know that that raises a whole host of questions, important questions. But if it's true, what could be more important? If this is the way to God, it's real, it's true, and it's the only path. How important is it that people would know? 
It's not tradition. It's not religion. It's relationship. This is what Jesus taught through and through. Will you put down your sword and open your arms and receive God into your life? Or will you continue to shake your fist at him in rebellion? I think we can also close with this. Think about the original audience. The people that he's specifically writing to and the tremendous pressure they were under not to stick with Jesus. All they have to do is say, yeah, that was a mistake. I'm just going to go back to the synagogue. All they have to do is say, yeah, let's go to the temple this, this Sunday uh, and make a sacrifice. I need to repent for this whole Jesus thing. And all the pressure would be off. There were so many reasons for them to do that. Their leaders were bearing down on them. The people who had been their authorities as children, the rabbis and the Pharisees and the rulers were telling them this is what they needed to do. Their families, their parents, their grandparents were weeping and saying, why are you neglecting the traditions of our elders? Their nation was caught up in the national identity of the Mosaic law, not understanding that the Mosaic law was a picture to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And they were coming from a history where whenever the Jewish people turned away from the teachings of Moses, God brought calamity on them and their nation collapsed. And so they're desperately afraid that the Jewish people are going to give up again on the law of Moses and their history. All of that coming together, bearing down on them just to let go. Not to mention losing their property and potentially facing prison. And we have pressure today. Thankfully, it hasn't reached that level yet. But there is a lot of pressure for us to say, well, there are many paths to God. And, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. And let's all just speak our own truth. And the problem is that we face a divided culture, a culture that's not united in its understanding of what is true and what is untrue and what is real and what is important and how we should live and what are the principles and the morals and the laws that we should live by. And our culture is caught up with this idea that we need to go off in this direction and leave the teachings of Jesus behind. And our families often look at us and say, you want to be one of those? One of those self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical, fake Christians? We are under pressure because of people's misconceptions and the terrible way that Christianity and the teachings of Jesus Christ have been represented in our culture because of people who claim to be Christians. 
But the people who hate us for our faith, while there's so much they don't know and don't understand about the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and the mercy of God, one thing they do understand, which is we believe there is only one way to God. And that one is true. Not because we want it that way, not because we made it that way, but because there's an authority greater than ourselves who has clearly declared there is one way to God, and we don't get to make that decision. That's management. We're sales. (laughs) And of course we want to be accepted. Of course we don't want to live in that tension. But the tension that we face is very similar to the same tension that the original audience faced. And the solution, the answer, is the same. The question for us is the same question that the author is driving home with them, which is, do you think this is true? Because how you feel about it really isn't as important as whether or not it's true. If it's true, then we have to stand up and love and serve and do the best that we can to overrun all those misconceptions and all those terrible examples of what it means to be a Christian. But we also have to stand on the truth because we are not the authority. God, as revealed in his scripture, is the authority. And that's what I've got for the rest of Hebrews 1. This is my last night here with you guys. You've been great. Oh, uh, yeah. It makes me feel so good, your, your sadness, your, your feigned sadness. Um, but you can continue following the series. It will, be, it will be a few weeks, and then you can look online, and if you want to continue studying in Hebrews, um, You can follow right along with us. uh, The teachings will be going up online, and you can continue the series while you get another great series from I don't know who because they didn't tell me, but there, what's that? Ben Faust. Well, I mean, there you go. Ben's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are vying for our attention, our time, our resources, and there's a lot of people that would like to be an authority in our lives. And we realize that we have to be shrewd, we have to be critical thinkers, and we certainly don't want to live for something that's not true. So we just pray, God, for the people that are here that don't know you, we just pray that they would be seekers, that they would seek the truth. Because we believe that will lead them to you. And we pray too for ourselves that we could understand you in a better way and become kinder and more patient and be people that can be an example against the horrible reputation uh, that many have in their heads of a really uh, muddled view of what it means to be a Christian. And that in our city and in our neighborhoods, and at our workplace, that we could give a great vision of what it means to have you in our lives. Amen. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.